This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Well, that might be a good idea. Yeah. Uh, his subject was I, shortcuts. I, I've been a student for like two years and I still haven't gotten that down using all of the tips that I've learned. From How to escape your thinking. Yeah. Mm hmm. Okay. I'm willing to do that, I think. Shortcuts to escaping your thinking. Anyone else have a subject they want me to do today? Uh, anyone who's already online can name a subject and I'll be happy to do it. Yeah? Maybe like um, how you should view other Jewish people. Like, you know, just seeing different things about them. How to view? Like, uh, how do you get along with other Jews? Like getting along with other Jews? That's a cool subject. Okay. You know, I'll let you guys vote. So we had, uh, here's our subjects. Um, his was, uh, uh, it was about getting out of your, the barrage of thoughts that tend to take away our well-being, you know, getting hijacked by your thinking. Yours is uh, uh, getting, getting along, getting along, along with other Jews. Getting along with Jews, that's not easy, getting along with Jews. <laughs> Uh, who else got a subject they want me to hand? We're going to vote in about another 30 seconds. Yeah. How to get energy. How to what? Get energy. Ener like physical energy? Uh, uh, energy. Uh, physical energy. It's also uh, maybe a vitality. What's that? With that, I would. Uh, working on concentration, like just not getting scatterbrained. Is that what you mean? I don't know. Separate. Separate. Okay. Concentration. You'd be the first one who ever asked me about concentration. <laughs> How about like you are able to describe the question? Is like, for example, you just like, Jehovah is this, 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 and basically you try your own way to go through the fourth thing. Shortcuts in Judaism or in life? Like, in life, like generally. Taking, moral, short, moral, taking shortcuts. Yeah, something moral shortcuts. Yes. Moral shortcuts. How are we going to vote on this? Everyone's going to vote on theirs. <laughs> You guys, come on, let's... Yeah, I'm going to vote What? This is great. You like all these? Maybe we'll throw all of them. You have another subject? If you guys think... If you think of another subject, we'll put it on the board. Maybe we'll do... We'll try each... Yeah, when you get... Yom Hatzmut. I usually speak on Yom Hatzmut about Yom Hatzmut. What day is Yom Hatzmut? It's Thursday. I'll be in Baltimore. Yeah. Yeah, I got a massage at four. <laughs> no kidding. When, when I travel, I like I schedule the massage because sitting in that plane like a like a cracker. You know, when they finally let me out of the wrapping, I, I need to get a massage. Usually sponsored by the people who bring me. This is not an exception. Rachel, you got a subject for me? Any subject? Nothing bothers you? That's my Rachel. 
It's <laughs> the most easygoing kid in the world. Okay. Okay. I think this should be my subject. Maybe I'll do a little of each. I'll do a little of each. Uh, guys, by the way, uh, uh, Shimon and Michael, if you guys have questions, let me know. Um, you can just WhatsApp, uh, what, not WhatsApp, uh, message me. And I don't know who the third person watching is, but if you guys have a subject you want me to handle, I'm happy to handle it. Okay. Let's do it. Um, I think we'll do each one. So, first of all, is uh, Ezra's question is, what are shortcuts to thinking um, meaning to getting rid of the barrage of thinking that that takes you away from from uh, well-being. You know, I mean, think about what takes you away. What takes you away from well-being? If I asked you that question, you'd all have like, well, worrying about finances takes you away from well-being, and and, and worrying about uh, you know, am I educated enough? You know, that takes away my well-being. And what are people thinking of me? That takes away my well-being for sure. Probably number one, what people actually think about you. Probably your number one thing. And and, um, and, you know, and, and there's a million things that we worry about. But what, what do they all have in common? Answer, Ezra? We're thinking about them. The, the thinking. The thinking is what they all have in common. Meaning it's not the subject that's messing you up. It's the thinking itself that's messing you up. Because what all your concerns have in common is they're things you think about that take away your well-being. Now... A lot of us think free will breaks down to, you know, like free wills like dinner or movie, milk or meat, uh, you know, uh, right and wrong. That's what we've, the way we've been viewing free will. But uh, masters, what we call, I did a class recently, it was actually quite a popular class, I personally hated it, but it was called uh, uh, Becoming a Spiritual uh, Warrior. Becoming a Spiritual Warrior. It was amazing. We went down like ten, a list of ten things that spiritual warriors embody. And this is going to be one of them, but the, uh, I didn't like the class personally because I felt like it, was, it wasn't humble. That was like my favorite class. I know, everyone loved that class. It wasn't a humble class, and I think why? Because a lot of people who aren't very humble loved the class. Because they got to like flex their spiritual warrior muscles, which makes you not a spiritual warrior, because one of the ways was to be humble. But um, anyway, the spirit, so, so one of those ways is that in free will mastery is not just dinner or a movie or right and wrong, but there's a whole, there's other levels. One of those levels, which we're not going to cover now, is who you're being. A lot of people don't realize that being is a subject of free will as well. Who you're being. Meaning, let's say you have the being of ugly, or you have the being of uh, stupid, or you have a being of unloved, or you have a being of, um, of inadequate, or a being of like unimportant, meaning insignificant, or you have a being of, I mean, you know, all states of being we have, usually coming from lame situations when we were kids. And of course, we didn't <coughs> tell anybody, so no one proved it wrong. And then once it became vibrational, meaning uh, things you believe about yourself become your vibrational frequency. Once something becomes vibrational, so then it just keeps feeding, meaning now you're sending it out, so it's going to come and get you with vengeance, meaning every circumstance is going to somehow morph back into that circumstance to prove once again that you are, you know, X, Y, Z, you know, etc. You have free will over that being. I don't care what you've been saying about yourself for the last 20 years. It's irrelevant to me. 
because it's your life, you're being, it's not like you wake up every day and someone calls you, you know, your mom calls you, Nick, and says, oh, Nick, I just want to remind you that you're not lovable. <laughs> she would never do that. So who's doing it? Who's doing it? You're doing it. So, so that's a level of free will. You can actually choose your being. A lot of people don't realize that. Now, there are details. I mean, you can't just wake up one day and say you're another being. There's work you got to do to get there. And uh, that's what I'm actually trained in, and I run seminars. And in, in, uh, the reason my seminars so many hours is one of the secrets to how to get under the radar of the being is hours. You need a lot of hours of under the microscope checking out who you've been being all these years. And then you get somehow, like a door opens, and you get to come, get, let's say like this, a door opens, you get to get out. And then look at the statements you're saying about yourself from the wall, like a fly on the wall, looking at those statements, saying like, those statements have about as much to me, do with me as Donald Trump has to do with Mahavdil, you know, the chief rabbi of Israel. Meaning nothing to do with, those statements have nothing to do with, the statements that have been the most intimate statements, my little nasty secrets about who I really am deep down, have nothing to do with me. And then you suddenly get led into a whole new level of free will you would have never thought of was the choice of who you're being. Now, do you think it's easy for something to trigger you back to the old being? No, that some could, if, let's say you're in the new being, do you think it's, it would be pretty easy for a trigger to pull you back to the old being? Depends for sure, for sure. But the beauty is, once you've been down that rabbit hole, you see the signs way before you get triggered. Because you know you're going to be seeing your mom. It's rare your mom pops by randomly to Uruguay, you know. You're, you know you're going to be seeing certain people. You know this circumstance at work when you didn't finish a project, your manager's coming to talk about that. So you're already, you can preempt it by just powerful, creating a powerful, you know, force around you of who you really are. Yeah, you blew the performance. That's not who you are. And so you're, when the manager comes in the office and says, what happened to the project? You know, and you don't give excuses either. That's part of the training. Is you, you go in full integrity. You own it. You own it. I didn't get it done. That's it. Didn't get it done. And then you can talk about why. If they're interested in hearing, maybe not keep. And But at least you're not getting triggered and going down some tailspin, going into a tailspin of some stupid thing that probably happened in kindergarten or God knows when. And, you know, you lived in that vibrational frequency for however many years. Anyway, but that work's called the possibly. I'm going to write that down because I'll be, people come from all over the world for it. It's next one's New York in June for women. Women's New York in June. It's the possibly you don't work. And the next men's one is Jerusalem in May. And, and then there will be men's also in June in New York City. And, and Muncie. Yeah, they're not, not here in Asia Tour. I, have a, I rent a hall. And, and there's going to be a Hebrew one for men coming up soon. What? It's, a, it's in New York. It's four days, six hours a day, and, uh, which is cool when you fly in because you'd like the time used. Uh, I feel bad more for the men who fly in because it's all day Sunday in New York. And then it's four hours a night each night, so they have nothing to do all day if they flew in. They can what? Right. What was your question? 
The women's one in New York? The Brooklyn one's June 6th, which is a Sunday, and then the... So there's a... What city do you live in? In New York? So there's a Muncie one, which is a schlep, but maybe you have someone you can sleep by some of the nights, is uh, going to be June 13th, I think, if that's a Sunday. Uh, sorry, Monday, June 14th. Brooklyn on June 6th, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, and then the week after is Muncie. You want to know something funny about it? It's a lot, I mentioned a lot of hours. So, you know, it's a little more than 24 hours. When you add, you know, six times four is 24. So... So I'm doing a men's and a women's concurrently in Brooklyn, and then a men's and a women's the next week concurrently in, in Muncie. So if you put it all together, it's, I don't know how to do that math, but it's four times 24 in eight days. 96. They read a 96-hour work week. So it's going to be a lot of fun. God should give me strength to have everyone navigate through the tears and the, it's a lot of heavy expression of emotion going on over there. And I'm, I'm kind of built to hold the space for that. Back to free will is that there's also free will on the subject of a whole nother level. Ready? Oh, thinking or not thinking or not. I know you guys are looking at me. You're all looking at me right now. What are you talking about? I can choose not to think. We're always thinking. We're always thinking. So guess what? You have an alternative way of thinking, which is called in Kabbalah, it's called Chachma. And you have your regular constant barrage of thinking, the one you that that takes advantage of you when you're not paying attention to it, which is called in Kabbalah, it's called Bina. There's a table for two, right? Maybe grab this. Table for two ladies. Where you are? Hey, you just took him away from the home. What could be so important? Where are you going, Rafa? What's going on downstairs? That's nice. Um, okay. So I'm by. She said, so I'm by. So Now, um, ladies, we were just discussing that one of the high levels of free will is choosing to think or not think. And, of course, that's a puzzling thing to think about. But we actually have two levels of thinking. We have a thinking that is, um, that is a, called Chochmah, and then there's a thinking called Bina. The Bina is the barrage of thoughts that, that can only really do their thing, like all your incessant barrage of thoughts can only do their thing in what's called in Hebrew behesach nadlas, in you're not paying attention. When you stop paying attention, the thoughts really go for it. But when you pay attention, because you're not your thoughts, are you thoughts? Are you thoughts? Are you thoughts? Do you, are you thoughts or do you have thoughts? You have thoughts, you're not thoughts. And once you make that little move, everyone say, I have thoughts. Say that, I have I thoughts. Have but I am not those thoughts. Again, I have thoughts, but I am not those thoughts. This is one of the shortcuts. He asked for shortcuts. Again, I have thoughts. I am not those thoughts. And the second you say that, you cause this little separation, meaning you're, you're, you're now moving from the, the analytical mind, which is your left mind, which is called Bina, 
and you have separated out what is called chokma, which is the associative mind, the right brain, the associative mind. But in the associative mind is it's a whole level of thinking over there. For example, when you have a conversation with a friend, did you notice how you go from subject to subject to subject, and after a while you're like, how do we get here? The answer is because you're, when you have conversation with friends, you're generally using the associative mind. That's a mind that's available to you. And it's a free flow type of thinking, which uh, just cruises from subject to subject, and it's happy and fun. Everything's good. You have an analytical mind, which is your left brain, which does not do subject to subject like that. It hits a subject and it starts to drill. And it uh, and especially drills when you don't pay attention. When you stop paying attention, it really drills. But hear that word, when you don't pay attention, it. You, it. You, it. There's two separate. You have two you's going on here. You have you, and then you have it, which is that thinking. The incessant thinking that hijacks your well-being. It hijacks you. The reason I call it hijack is it hijacks the you. So you and it become meshed. In, 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 enmeshed? How do you say that? Enmeshed? You and it become enmeshed. And so Ezra's question, what's the shortcut to unmesh us? Unmesh me and my thinking from each other. So that the right brain, which is, we call the Klochmo, is when you're unmatched, is your actual presence. It's your conscious self. It's your true self. In Judaism, we'd call it your soul. It's your actual soul. So, like, for example, I think all of us right now in this room are present way more than a minute ago when we started the subject. Because it's, now, who's that you? That's not the thinking. So now you get present. Automatically. You can't help it. And this is like the power of the mindfulness movement today, is that just in a matter of one little move... You get present. This is one. It's a flick of the wrist. You get present. Now, this is harder for people who are obsessive thinkers, obviously, because um, there are people who have a sense of, uh, a little more obsessive thinking than others. And uh, by the way, all of us are obsessive thinkers when we're not conscious. And just by getting conscious that there's me and my thinking, which are two separate entities, then I get conscious. But there are people who are such obsessive thinkers that they, um, they're not willing to let go that easy. You know, I mean, the thinking doesn't want to stop. And the reason is, is they're just more deeply enmeshed. They're just, they're, their thinking is so strong and so intensely drilling and, you know, uh, always going that it, it, it doesn't un unmesh as quickly. So those people need to use other exercises besides just the I and it exercise, which we already did. The I and it exercise. But since we did the I and it, let's all take a deep breath. Experience the I versus the it for a second. Deep breath. Again. You can close your eyes. I'll close mine for your personal privacy. Exhale. One more with the eyes closed. Release. Now eyes open, because you're still there, even with the eyes open. We don't have to go into deep meditation to have the eye be present. And you'll notice how quiet your thinking got. 
And one of the funny reasons why it got so quiet is because for it to start speaking right now would really, it'd be busted. It'd get its hands stuck in the cookie jar, you know, for your, right, for all that thinking to hit you right now would be like, it'd be busted. Like, right now, your your left brain's just got his hands, he's going like this. Like, trying to be invisible, you know, trying not to get caught. Because he only really can do his thing when you're not paying attention. As soon as you pay attention, listen, listen how quiet. Breathe. The reason I'm having you breathe is to create an anchor of consciousness so that you hold that space. Now, let's go to people who are a little more obsessive thinkers. Uh, they would do these kinds of exercises, like this kind of breathing into the eye, the eye versus the it breathing. Um, every morning they start their day there because the thoughts are going before you realize. So you start your day with the I versus it exercise, just in bed even. Just saying. It is the thinking. There's me and then there's my thinking. And that's the it. So you start the day with the I it exercise. Um, another thing is that you. Um, you say high thoughts. Everyone say high thoughts. High thoughts. Because thinking is involuntary. It's always going. And you, the reason we say high thoughts, you're saying hi to them. You understand why we're doing that? We're, we're saying, oh, hi there. You know, it'd be like if, you, uh, if your kid thought, you know, you didn't notice him near the cooking jar. And now he's digging in. And <laughs> you'd just be like, let's say his, his name is uh, Moishi. So you kind of come in there and be like, hi, Moishi. And you just be like, oops. So, so that's high thoughts. You know, just catch them by the cookie jar. Everyone say it again, high thoughts. High thoughts. Which then leads to high thoughts, by the way, to higher thoughts. Consciousness is where the associative mind where you can get some very high thoughts. Yeah. So why does it stop doing... Why does it stop thinking for us when we, I guess you say, catch it in a cookie jar? But um, I've heard of this thing where you know your eye has like a blind spot, and when, even when you focus on it, it'll still fill in the, it'll still fill in the blind spot. The, the, I think the answer to your question is that the brain, it's still the brain. It's, it's I'm, I'm just describing two functions of the brain, so. So when that blind spot, if you can find the blind spot of the thoughts, your brain's still going to fill it in, but it fills it in with consciousness. So what is this that we're focusing on and all of a sudden it disappears, that the, what, what disappears is the analytical, the analytics that are going on all day. They, 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 slow, they slow to halt, really. And then you can be, have your consciousness. And what happens if you do enough of this, you don't have to do it. Um, I mean, I do this so much that I don't have to spend my time worrying about it. I just watch the thoughts. And you know, you know what I really monitor more than my thoughts? As a trick question, what do I monitor even more than my thoughts? Excellent. He's, he's such a good student. I monitor my feelings. Why? Because thoughts lead to feelings. You can't have a feeling without a thought. Like, let's say you had a feeling of fear, you'd have to first have a scary thought. Let's say you had a feeling of sadness, you'd have to have a sad thought. Let's say you want a feeling of joy, you've got to have this happy thought. It doesn't come without the thought. 
So what's the ultimate thing you should be monitoring? Feelings. Feelings. Wait a minute. Yeah. Oh, I was talking about more when you get on. Once you start really getting this wired, and you got your thoughts basically shut up besides when you're going to use them, meaning that I need to think something out, then I go to my left brain. See, most people are always in the left brain, and then they get a chance to come out like we just did. And then they're back in the left brain, and then they get a chance to come out. And then they're back in the left brain. But you can actually get to the point where you're in the right brain all the time. And then you need to do a mathematical equation, or you got to get somewhere, and you, or you got to work out your schedule or something. You understand? Then you employ the left brain. Then you go back to presence, and then you employ the left brain. And then you wind up living your the hours of your life wind up being present hours. Understand? Hi, Benjamin. You're living present. Does it bother you guys if I say hi once in a while to the people? How do you protect yourself from Right, so the answer I already said is by when I really monitor is feelings. I want to have a happy life or a sad life? A relaxed life or a nervous life? I, I want a happy life, relaxed life. I want a lot of well-being, right? You all want a lot of well-being? So monitor your feelings. As long as you're feeling well, you're good. If you start feeling not well, well, then there must have been some kind of some kind of cognitive stimulation, negative cognitive stimulation. My feelings. Well, I my day my life is made up of its minutes, its seconds, seconds, minutes, hours, and I'm going for as many joyful minutes as possible every day, because if you have a lot of joyful thoughts all day. If you're going like joyful thoughts all day, so then you had a joyous life at the end. You get that? It was a joyous week, it was a joyous month, it was a joyous life. So that's what I want. I, in the end, you wanted happiness, right? Everyone agrees you want happiness. So I want a happy life. So, well, my life's made of its minutes. So I better monitor my feelings minute by minute. I'm observing those, I'm observing my feelings. If I have a negative feeling, well, I must have had a negative thought. I go check out, hmm, yeah, I did have a negative thought. Hmm, better do the I-it exercise. Because I'm not my thoughts. It's called training, right? What? Can you train yourself to this? It's training. This is what we're discussing is training. And it's extra work for obsessive thinkers. Extra work for obsessive thinkers. But many times you can understand something, let's see, you understand why you shouldn't be jealous of someone, but then you feel jealous. And if you think about it, think about it and say, it's not logical to be jealous, but then you feel jealous. And that will bring negative feelings. So you, they, but you can come up with other tools too. If you're still feeling jealous, you can come up with other tools. Like if you really, really fall and whatever, you'll figure it out. You're bringing up a whole other move, and that other move is when you're stuck. What do you do when you're stuck? You are feeling jealous, and it's not going away because you're truly jealous. So when it when things aren't going away like that, so you got to play a new game, and the new game is that is that you you there's a lot of things you can do with it, but. Um, one of the things is you become their, there's a lot of games. One is to be their sponsor. You become the sponsor of the person you're jealous of. 
Like there's been people that I was just simply jealous of. They were, her, her uh, careers were way too close together in like what we do. And so when he would have successes, it would hurt me a little bit. So what happened was I would call him and say to him, you know, I, I hear they're thinking of taking you in such and such a town, Las Vegas, whatever. They're taking you for Shabbos in Las Vegas. And he says, yeah. And I said, so I, whatever, I heard that. Because they had called me and said, if he can't do it, can you do it? How do you think that felt? <laughs> Not good. So I called him and I said, I heard they're thinking of taking you. He's like, yeah. And I said, listen, I know that you normally charge, you know, 2,000 bucks a Shabbos. I just want you to know they can pay three. And, uh, and you should charge three for that. And he says, whoa, thank you. So he sends him an email saying he wants three. He gets the three. And, and then he sends me a thank you because, like, I just gave his wife and kids an extra grand to, like, for clothes and food and shelter and rent and everything they need. You understand what's just happened? I, this is my, this is my boy. This is my boy. You understand? I, I'm now, I'm now invested here. I'm going to see success with this guy. Because I'm, you know, I'm backing him. You get that? Now, it's a bit of an ego move, but the jealousy goes away pretty quick when you're invested in someone. So then you got to play other tricks. Once you're in a feeling that's just not going away, you got to start getting creative with the feeling. Don't swim in it, though. Don't bathe in it. Don't sulk. You get stuck in a feeling, get creative with how to get out. That, I was just giving a creative way. It's called be the sponsor. You become the sponsor of the person who's bothering you. Um, by the way, this works in business really well. One sec. Works in business really well is to, uh, if you got a competition of some sort, is promote, promote your competition. And, and by the way, promoting your competition is a secret to longevity in, a, in a, any field. You'll notice that people who are generous in their field generally are stay in the field for uh, the long haul. And people who are stingy in their field, their field dries up. It's God's little trick because God creates a world with abundance. So if, if you live with abundance, you're cruising with God's you know, fuel. You're on, you're on God's frequencies. And so he puts abundance in your life, and he puts longevity in your life. People are playing the scarcity game. God tends to shut the valve. You know, he just shuts the valve on them. And, and I, I do several different things in my life, and I've literally watched people come and go. People better at what I'm doing than I am. People, with, you know, who have more skill sets than I have. And, um, but they, were, they, were, they didn't know how to be abundant in it. You know, there was once, a, I told you I have a seminar company, so there was, there was another seminar company that was not exactly my seminar. Tell me it was much more powerful than my seminar uh, in its emotional impact, but my seminars to get your life great, which you're going to have to do a lot of work here. Theirs was purely here. I mean, you, you, if you were in their seminar for a day, I'm sorry, 24 hours, which their seminar is about 30 hours, I think, you couldn't even take one page of notes. Can you imagine being somewhere for 30 hours without one page of notes? <laughs> you know how much tissue you know how much tissue you go through in those 30 hours? I mean, you like you need to like invest in Kleenex tissue stock before you join the uh, join the seminar. So amazing seminar. So what would happen is they had trouble filling it because any seminar that's that emotional is going to be super hard to market, hard to fill it. 
And so they would call me to fill their seminar. And you know what I would do? I would like single-handedly fill the seminar. I would finish my seminar with all my graduates and say, listen, there's a seminar coming up in about a month. And I think you should all be there. And they're like, when you finish the seminar, you think the leader of the seminar is God. And I just told the whole entire group that they need to be at this next seminar. So they're like, okay. So they would all go to the seminar. Now, how many people you think he sent me over the years of his seminar to fill my seminar? How many people you think came recommended from him? It was, I, I could count them on one hand. There were people, but a little under five. I think four people were sent over a three-year period over that time. And by the way, I, though, I wouldn't have even kept those guys. These were the guys who like, nothing's going to help. And so they got tired of them, you know, coming around and they're like, Oh, go to rabbit glazing. So that's who I got. I got the unhelpables, you know? And, um, and so you can imagine the answer to the question is, is that seminar still around? That amazing, I mean, it's amazing. I would never send anyone to anything under them. Under amazing, it was amazing. Still around? It's gone. It's gone. It's a shame. Abundance. Live with abundance. What? The goal, the goal is to become unpredictable. Yeah, that's the goal. Is to become predictable. Like you just wear, you can wear a thousand hats. You know, you can be sitting in business class in an executive suit and find yourself at the bottom of coach helping people put their bags, you know, meaning they, you have to play Tetris sometimes and coach with the bags up in the overhead bin. And you just happen to be really good at Tetris. So, you know, you heard arguments in the back, in the back of the plane. You walk out of business, you go back there and you pay, you play Tetris with six suitcases, six carry-ons. You know, you got to be fluid with that. How many people you yeah, think in the world in business class are going back there to play Tetris with other people's suitcases? Reminds me of a story I had once. I was, uh, I was, I was up in business class, not because I was sitting in business class, but I had to put my Taylor guitar there because, as everyone knows, United breaks guitars. So, I. Um, <laughs> that's a joke, I guess, for those who get it. Get it. So. Um, you know United breaks guitars? Am I going to get like in trouble with United for a second? <laughs> you guys know about United breaks guitars? The video? Uh, you can see it on YouTube later. It's quite a quite a it's actually a very good country western song. There. Anyway, the uh, so I was putting my guitar. I was putting my Taylor in uh, first class, which is where it belongs. And uh, I stopped traveling with my tailor, by the way. I bought a tailor for New York so I could, like, enough traveling with my tailor. And I was, so I was in first class. And I guess everyone was still in the lounge because I think they come later. Like, they get their own announcement later to come out of the lounge because why sit in the plane when you can be in the lounge? And so 
So first class was empty. Business class was empty. Coach was like, it was like jungle warfare going on back there. I mean, there were like fist fights and people screaming and women crying and babies screaming. And it was like a, a jungle back there. So I said to the nice lady who was working up there in the first class, I said to her, would you say there's a lot of competition at the top? Pointing to first class only having eight seats and business only having 20. And there's a lot of competition at the top. And she says, there's a lot of competition at the top. And then I pointed to the back of the plane and I'd say, the way things look around here, a lot of competition at the bottom. Not a lot of competition she looked at me kind of puzzled. But it was true. <laughs> There's hardly any competition at the top. At the top was, there was plenty of room. Plenty of room for everybody. It was at the bottom where everyone's fighting. You hear the story, Rachel? It's the bottom where everyone's fighting. So what's going on? Where's the competition? Why is it the competition at the top or the bottom? It's at the bottom. You want to know Why? Because there's something that tastes so foul, it tastes so foul, that it's imp almost impossible to swallow. It just tastes so foul that you, you, you can't swallow it. And so you just can't help it when it gets in your mouth, you just gotta spit it out. You just gotta spit it out. You just wanna throw it up. You know what it's called? What? Pride. Pride? No. No. You ready? It's called failure. Failure. Not too many people chew on the fat of failure. Most people taste its foul taste because it tastes foul. And spit it out. But there are the few people who know about this little secret called chew on the fat of failure. You chew on it. It teaches you amazing lessons. It's like a it's like a psychedelic drug, failure. You chew on it, you get it all out, let it go into your bloodstream. Learn from it. It will teach you lessons. It will teach you. You know what it teaches you? Teaches you exactly what works, exactly what doesn't work. Would you say that's going to be important for the future of you know carrying on business and things in life and any endeavor? Would you say knowing what works and what doesn't work is going to be an important, important, pretty important lesson? Well, if you chew on the fat of failure, you get to know exactly what works. You get to know exactly what doesn't work. And so you get to now really put the pedal to the metal because now you got clarity. You know what works. You know what doesn't work. At least till that level of success or failure in this case. So you, but you're never going there again. You're going to be turning right when you hit. When you get to there, you're going to be turning right. Now you may fail somewhere else, but it's going to be somewhere up there. And when you hit that, when you hit it, and you will ask anyone. You, you know. You know, uh, retired wealthy people are extremely bored, and they would love to take you out to lunch. You know about this? Retired, well, even famous ones. Retired wealthy people have this, like, tremendous existential issue 
they should never retire, first of all. The first thing is don't retire. Because they, they've, they, uh, they draw so much meaning over what they do, it's better for them to stay in it than to retire, even though they don't need to work anymore. But they, they, they have this like existential issue. And, and so if you can give them meaning by asking, picking their brain at lunch for a while, and just let them tell you the whole story, most of the story will actually be the failures. The beginning parts will mostly be the failures that, that taught them the way to the top. Clear? So just so you all remember that, say the words, chew on the fat of failure. Chew on the fat of failure. Yeah. <laughs> well, now we know it doesn't work. You try that, chew on the fat of failure? Try that back there? People, you know what most people do? You know what most people do when they fail? They never go back there again. Meaning they leave that whole realm and go find something else. And what happens if they fail over there? Which they're gonna, because part of success is lots of failures on the path. So they're gonna wind up somewhere else. And then if it fail, they're gonna go somewhere else. They're gonna go somewhere else, ding, 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 ping, pong, ping, pong, ping, pong. And then eventually you bump into something that works. And you know what you do when you bump into something that works? You pretend that's what you always wanted. <laughs> because it wasn't what you originally wanted. It's where you wound up. After spitting out enough possibilities of what you actually want. You wind up somewhere else and you paint a, you know, you paint a happy face. And think about it, most people date that. Most people, that's the way they date. Not talking about observant Jews. Observant Jews date the way you're supposed to date. The way people dated for thousands of years. That's the way observant Jews date. But the rest of the world dates through, you know, oop, that didn't work. Boom, 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 boom. Eventually it fits. And then it's like, oh, this is, yeah, this is what I wanted. Of course, you're like a, you're like a train wreck by the time you get there. <laughs> it's like... Uh, whatever's left of the heart after going through the egg slicer with all the failures. It's funny, like, failure with the heart is a lot more painful than failure in business. Failure with the heart, when you put your heart, like, squarely into the hands of another human being and then had the blood squirted, squeezed out of it, you know, went through the mincer. So, it's like, it's a different lesson than what I was talking about with business and money and, you know, different types of careers. It's a very different lesson. Why? Because your heart isn't quite as resilient as your bank account. You know, or your, the heart, like, when you get married with a heart that's been through the ringer. So, even though your mind knows you're married now, your heart's not willing to trust. So there's not a lot left. So with the heart, it's a whole different protocol. With the heart, you go into mold, um, massive protection mode, and you never share words. Here's the rule if you want a principle. I'm giving a lot of principles. You never share words of endearment until you're wearing an insurance policy on your finger. And you never share words of endearment until you got an insurance policy on your finger. You need insurance for the heart.
that this person's in. You know, and, and people, lo- people love to say, I love you out there and like pretend they're in. But they're not in. Because you're not in until you put some skin in it. You got to put some skin in it. When I say uh, that's probably a dangerous uh, analogy here, um, in this particular case, you're not in until you put some investment. And what's investment? Investment's risk. You got to take risk. And the, and the real risk is is uh, an engagement ring. And I personally think words of endearment aren't even appropriate in engagement rings. They're okay, but I think words of endearment belong after the wedding, like the wedding band, like real, like really put something in there. Meaning, think about it, when you get married, all those contracts and everything involved with the contract, the ketubah and stuff, is like, it means for him to get out, he's going to have to go through hell. And for her to get out, they're going to have to go through hell. But to get out of a a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship, even living together to get out of that is like, it's difficult, but it's not hell. It may be painful for a while, but only emotionally. You know, there's, a, there's an entanglement that's marriage. And, and so you don't offer your heart on the altar until you're protected first. You treat, it, you treat your money that way. Right? You're not putting your money anywhere until you know, you know, you're going to get a return on that. And so why would you treat your heart, which is a billion times more sensitive than your money, why would you treat your heart any differently than the risk-benefit of money? Now, I know this sounds totally anti-Western, what I'm saying right now. And it is anti-Western, but but it is uh, it is ancient tradition of you know protection of your most valuable possession, and that's your your heart and its gift of of love and relationship. So, and and you should know. Just want to add one more thing: that principle of not giving your heart till you get the insurance policy is a segula. It's a segula. A um, a charm, like spiritually, causes a charm spiritually of God actually bringing your soulmate. Yeah. Why? Because once you say, I'm not sharing words of endearment until I've got that wedding man on, or at least an engagement ring, if I'm not sharing words of endearment till then, well, then what's happened is I've created a vacuum for my needs for connection. And nature hates a vacuum. And so what happens is a little bell goes off in heaven and God says, somebody's lonely down there. Somebody's lonely. And, and, and God sends the soulmate to that person because nature hates a vacuum. And you'll notice the opposite's also true. That, that vacuum we often fill with all kinds of, often platonic relationships, will fill the vacuum with all kinds of stuff. But now there's no vacuum. And so the bell stops ringing upstairs because we've got ourselves, you know, involved, entangled in stuff that uh, it's not necessarily safe yet. So may we be blessed uh, to take all the lessons. What? You need the lesson of that. 
Oh, when you uh, when you don't when you don't get your heart entangled with someone until there's wedding ring, then uh, you it creates a vacuum of your need for that kind of intimacy, and that vacuum, nature hates a vacuum, nature fills vacuum, and so God will send your soulmate to you to fill the vacuum, to fill that space. You have to create a vacuum. Yeah. So you know, like if you have to open up to your partner for like a certain degree of freedom, right? Yeah. You can't be totally close to Where do you find a balance? Yeah, you got you got to balance it. Um, I'm not going to answer that question right now, just because the time. Are you speaking, Rabbi? What are you speaking on today? Holocaust. Oh wow, Holocaust. Okay. Um, so that's a good question. I'm going to answer the word is. Um, is this whole period of time is very short. Uh, once you decide you're not going to be giving your heart to somebody, so which in, including your body, so dating gets real quick. You know, you, no long, nothing long term could ever happen because your body's not getting touched and your heart's not getting shared. So all of a sudden, dating is like you 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 just get this laser beam clarity after a few dates. This is one of the secrets people don't understand is that when they are physically involved and they are emotionally involved with someone that isn't necessarily the one they'll be marrying in the end. So it, what it does is it prolongs the dating to months to even years. How many people have I met that dated someone for years and it didn't go? It prolongs it. But the second you shut the faucet off of the heart and the touch, once you shut down heart and touch, in, I don't mean total shutdown like you're saying or it'll never go. But what happens is dating gets real quick, like three dates and you know, like this is either going into marriage or I'm out. And once you decide you're not touching and you're not going to be sharing all those feelings that are inappropriate, meaning they're, they're premature the, uh, to the insurance, they're premature to the insurance policy. So then what happens is you just know real quick and then you move on to the next person till, till they can pass the test of, of trust and open up more, open up more until, you know, but you can, most people, even secular people could probably be engaged within five to 10 dates. Secular people could be engaged five to 10 dates. If they just stop touching, no touching and no sharing the terms of endearment. Okay. Shalom, everybody. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.